Okay, so this is the third session of the introduction to Sutta study. This is where we have to do everything else that we didn't do in the first two <laughs> sessions that's covered in the suttas. No. <laughs> Fortunately, we're not that ambitious. Um, but we are creating kind of a pattern. Um, so we started with uh, the foundation for practice, you know, the things that we put in place in our life uh, in order to be able to undertake the teachings that were specific to the Buddha, you know, things like ethical conduct and a right understanding of the effect that our actions have and other ways of having good relationships with people, including relationships with teacher, for example. And then that paves the way for doing uh, the practices, which we talked about last time, which there are many, many practices, but, you know, practices of honing our attention, of stabilizing the mind, of uh, opening the heart, and of refining our understanding. So all of these are components. We're starting to get the sense that this is a very complete kind of practice, and that makes sense. What we're doing is we're transforming the mind to operate in a different, under a different paradigm, essentially, but not one that can be willed or one that can be fully understood until it's achieved. So this time, um, we're looking toward the fruit of practice. And I wrote a provocative line in the email where I said, the fruit of practice is not calmness, personal healing, or what else did I write? Uh, Bliss. Bliss, yes. Um, Which is not to say those things don't happen and are not components of the path, but they're not the fruit of the path. That was what I wanted to get across. Because they're very wonderful things, and they tend to come about for nearly everyone. And it can be easy to mistake that for, you know, you're shooting too low, is what I'm saying, <laughs> if, that's, if that's it. So that's pretty good, right? If, you know, personal healing, bliss, and calmness are shooting too low, it's just a pretty good path. <laughs> so we're going um, to look tonight at, um, toward the end of the, you know, the fruit of the practice. And so if we keep doing all this meditation and all this watching of our breath, and if we're so tired of watching our mind complain about Donald Trump and everything that goes on, what does this actually lead to? So the implication um, from the texts is that we will have particular insights. And you don't need to go to Asia or um, into a deep cave or have some kind of special circumstances (coughs) beyond your own mind and body. That's another great thing about this practice is that it's said that every, you know, every human life has the components in it for the awakening of that mind. So don't worry that you're missing something somehow. Um, although you may be inspired to go to Asia, I don't know. Uh, um, but the particular insights, which we'll, um, I'll talk about in a moment, come about, and those lead to this thing called Nibbana, which is, you know, which is the aim of the path, Nibbana or Nirvana. We're having a fight over here. Can we say that that word again? Nibbana or nirvana. Nirvana is the fruit of the path. Yeah. And this is universally said to be indescribable, which does not stop there from being volumes of Buddhist literature (laughs) about uh, 
Nibbana. <laughs> so um, we'll content ourselves with not covering the entire topic tonight. And then um, I've tacked on the end of tonight's topic, this the path, insight, Nibbana, and the path. And you could say, well, why are we learning about the path after we learn about the goal? Well, that's how the Four Noble Truths are set up. And it's interesting, isn't it, right? That we have, there's suffering, there's the cause of suffering, and then there's the end of suffering, which is the fruit. And then the fourth truth is the path. I used to wonder about that. The first time I learned them, I said, well, why would you not put them in the order of suffering, the cause, the path, and the fruit? But it turns out that to really understand the path, uh, you have to be able to see it clearly. You have to turn around and see it, essentially. And so we can do the path as we're going along, but it's a little bit of a unknown process as it goes along. And to know it uh, happens after after there's some insight. You don't have to wait all the way till the very, very end. You start, start to see it before that. But it's an interesting phenomenon. I've started to have an appreciation for that order of the noble truths, actually. And we won't go into this in this class, but if you trace very carefully the way the suttas describe the Buddha's own insights, people are very interested in that, so they comb the suttas for, you know, how did it work for the Buddha? And there is a sutta where he points out that he had a certain amount of insight and could see a certain amount, and then he had one last, he saw one last piece. He saw the very beginning of dependent origination. He had only seen to the second step um, in all of his prior practice. And then um, there was this kind of last moment where he saw how, basically how mental formations work, and that was the moment when he was completely liberated and saw all of the Four Noble Truths. So even for him, there was a sense that until he got to the end, he couldn't have described this for us. So we can be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Somebody went all the way, and now we have a very clear description of that. But we won't know it for ourselves until we, until we do it, until we walk it. So the way we've... Um, Chris and I talked about how we would deal with the fact that we gave you like ten things to read and... Um, <laughs> You know, we didn't want it to be rushed, and uh, so we're trying a little different thing from last class, which is that we'll focus a little bit on one particular, on the sutta, the full, one of the full suttas, that has a lot of these elements in it, and buried in it in various ways, and uh, we'll, we just are not going to cover a couple of things, but the aim, and I'm saying this out loud so that it might have a chance of coming about, is that we want to finish what Chris and I are doing by 8.15, and so we'll have 15 minutes for... Uh, any final questions or open discussion or anything else. And you can also interrupt along the way, of course. Um, So I guess my job is also to, before we start talking about um, the main sutta we'll talk about, which is uh, the SN 5611, the Four Noble Truths, the one on the Four Noble Truths, is that I want to describe these um, three insights that are particularly prominent. And that was the uh, first section on impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. Why don't we pass these up? Yeah, that's that's a good time. Then we won't um, have to wait later. So, these particular qualities of experience, the fact that it's impermanent or inconstant, and constant is actually what the Pali word means, uh, that it's unsatisfactory, ex- any experience cannot provide in itself 
a lasting form of happiness. Does everybody have one? There's probably oh, extras. Okay, just put some of the extra ones on the floor. That would be fine in case somebody else comes in. There's only one hand up, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So these three characteristics or three qualities or three insights or three perceptions, there have been called many different things over time, uh, are impermanence or inconstance, inconstancy, uh, unsatisfactoriness or sometimes called suffering, but the fact that experience isn't inherently, innately, completely, forever satisfying. No experience will do that for us. And then uh, not-self, impersonal, so there isn't um, an essence, an essential soul, essentially. This is a teaching that there isn't a soul. I'll say it boldly. Um, And... These are called the liberating insights. There are lots and lots of insights that one has in practice, and they're all, they're all helpful and good. Like we may have a strong insight as to why we're, ter- why we're afraid of a particular thing. We can have personal psychological insights. And seeing very clearly how the mind is creating fear about something can be very, very liberating. We can become liberated from getting caught in that particular kind of fear. So I don't want to at all dismiss all the insights that mindfulness practice is going to bring about understanding our mind-body system. But um, these three in particular, uh, the understanding, these three understandings are called liberating insights, and those are the ones that start to dig into the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are really what are uh, confining the mind from being free. So liberating insight is itself not Nibbana, but it's a fruit of the path, and they're very powerful when they come. Um, and and we'll, we'll probably have many liberating insights, and those are moments where the mind is chipping away at uh, the, the ignorance that's keeping it from being free. And then eventually, uh, through the path of these insights, the mind experiences uh, complete release. And we can have little tastes of that before... We're Buddha before we're an Arahant. Uh, yeah, so I think all I'll do to summarize the three characteristics is to point toward this um, excerpt from MN 147, where the Buddha often linked them together. It's not like these are three totally separate things that we have to walk a different path in order to get to each one. They kind of come out of each other. They kind of are all of a piece. And so to emphasize that, he's talking to his son, Rahula, and this is actually the sutta where he guides his son through to full awakening. So that's pretty cool to get that from your father. Um, And he says, is the I, so just, you know, meaning the the faculty of the I of seeing, is that constant or inconstant? And so, of course, Rahula says, well, it's inconstant. These seem very simple. Not every, everybody would agree that there's change or inconstancy. And then he says, well, there's sort of a logic chain. Is that easeful or stressful? You say, oh, I guess that would be stressful, actually, if things are we can't re- rely on them to be the same. It's bad enough when your Internet connection is going in and out, right? As your, <laughs> your eye is going in and out. Um, and so he has to say stressful, and so that's the second 
quality. And he says, is it fit, fitting to regard what is inconstant, stressful, and subject to change as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? So he says, no. And so it's not so much a process of declaring there's no soul, there's no self, you should find, you know, you should abandon all thoughts that you matter in the universe. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not at all annihilationist or nihilistic like that. It simply says, look and see if you can find anything that is your essential, indestructible soul. And when we look, we don't find it, and that process is important. It doesn't matter that I'm telling you this, actually. It has to be seen and experienced. And so these, these are pointers to ways to practice, essentially. Are there any questions about the, the three liberating insights before we move on to the Four Noble Truths? Just that inevitably, or... I, I guess I, I can understand the first two, the second one, we've, I mean, the third one, the... Not self. We probably had fifteen sessions of our little sangita where we've talked about the not self and the no self, and you know, it's still, it's just kind of like I, I understand the whole construction thing of it. I just, um, I don't know how one experiences that. I understand experiencing the other two, but I don't understand the experiencing part of the no-self. So it's, it's a, always confusing to me. It's a great question, and maybe Chris will have something to add. Um, have you ever had the experience of being very involved in doing an art or craft or cooking such that you had no sense of time, no sense of... Yes, and the... Science of Happiness class that was called Flow. Flow. Have you ever experienced Flow? So you have. So at that moment, that's an experience of not-self. It's a form of it. Um, it's a common, the, the most common one that people have had. Right? You're not thinking about your plans for tomorrow, who you are, the fact that you're uh, annoyed with your child right now. All of those concerns are gone. And yet, you're conscious, you're doing things, you're not at all inhibited in your ability to act. So what this points out is that the self is not needed. It's not actually needed for the function of life, functioning of life. It may arise. It's not like when it arises, it's the wrong thing. Oh, terrible, that shouldn't happen. If I'm spiritual enough, my self will never arise. It's conditioned. It arises like you have to sneeze when you get dust in your nose. Um, but that doesn't mean it's essential, true, eternal. So it's actually, it's a very subtle insight, but also a very simple one, that it's really not there all the time. So it's a construct, as you said. And the experience, that's one way to experience it, is to experience flow. Do you want to add anything, Chris? Yeah, I think, you know, it's also something we can experience in our meditation practice where um, the self-referential thoughts fall away and we're just experiencing the flow of of whatever's arising Mm -hmm. in the mind. So there might be a sensation or a thought or emotion, but 
but there's this sense of them just happening on their own. There's no one doing it. Um, because we're, not, we're no longer referring it. Most of the time, if you observe your, your thinking, a lot of thinking is self-referential. It's a, you know, in one way or another, it's about me, mine, I, no, I'm going to do this, or I'm feeling this, or this is mine, or just there's all these various permutations, but when that drops away, then where's the self? You know, it's like you can't really find it anywhere even if you want to look for it. But at that moment, you don't even really want to look look for it. So you're just being with what's happening, which is also that the same experience of flow. So it's not, as Kim says, it's not actually complicated. It's quite simple. But I think through conditioning and as an artifact of language, we start to believe in this idea of self. It's a, this mental construct that we have that we believe in, but it's actually nowhere to be found, which is what this sutta um, to Rahula, the teachings to Rahula were all about. He went through you know, all of the sense spaces, including the mind, and pointed out that you can't find it anywhere. No, where is it? Went through the aggregates, can't find it. Um, so but we can we can experience it directly in, in our meditation practice um, as, as we, we settle and deepen in concentration and mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah, I've probably had it uh, tried to be explained to me uh, more than 15 times, maybe 30 or 40. The not-self. <clears throat> I don't see how it's really practical as a human... Um, you know, it'd be nice to be able to flow from one thing to another. But, you know, I know that driving here, I had to think about my lane, you know, their lane. You know, I had to think about, you know, my parking spot. Yeah, I hope spot, you'll go back you know. to your car after this evening. I'll go back to my car. <laughs> yeah. So, you see what I mean? It's, it's, it's a bit, it almost feels like you're, gonna, you're coming in and out. You're phasing in and out of self and not self. And you try not to be, try to be totally not self all the time you end up homeless or something, you know, because you're not taking care of yourself. So well, I, I don't know. I, I just like to throw that kind of stuff out there because <laughs> I don't get it. And just to see, you know, I mean, I totally get the flow. You know, I, I try to be a writer. And I do that. I, I'll start writing at, at, at 5 and someone quit at 8. And at 3 in the morning, I'm still doing it. So, you know, everything, and that's almost like a hypnosis. But, you know, the day-to-day thing, I just don't get it. I don't get what, how we can stay in the flow. Well, if you listen to the, if you listen to the Buddha, that wasn't to imply that that's the only experience of not self. She asked, "What is an experience of not self?" And I wanted to give one that's tangible. If you listen to the Buddha, he talks about himself. He talks about his childhood. Mm -hmm. He knew who his son was. He had no problem with that. He just wasn't attached to any of it, so there was no suffering related to it. And. yeah. You know, for me, it helps to. I I really get more of a grip on it by seeing how much, uh, how I am so impermanent. I've kept a journal for decades, and when I read things that I wrote, you know, maybe thirty years ago, I don't remember writing it. I don't remember living it, but it's there in my handwriting and dated. Mm-hmm. 
you know, but, but like, was that the same person I am now? No. You know, it's it's changes so much over time. You have these experiences, you have these feelings, and it's like, you know, where is that person that had those feelings and thoughts? Not here. Yeah. And, and, we can also ask, oh, go ahead. And, and you know, to your point, um, you know, it, it's not that it's not a useful construct to have, a, you know, this idea of self, and of, you know, because to, to sometimes to function in society, it's useful. But also, if you have um, been on retreat, especially retreat where they really emphasize continuity of mindfulness, you can actually function in, in this, a sort of state of flow all the time. And it's very liberating. It's like it's like some burden has been dropped, and the burden is that sense of self, that 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 constant need to maintain the sense of self that one can drop, and and we can do that more and more in our daily life, where we can start letting go of, you know, so much of that sense of self, but still in in a conversation with someone, it's useful to have pronouns, <laughs> just so we know what we're talking about. Uh, interchangeable using the word self and ego. It, I don't you know, want to do the Western That's where I was going to a, you know, a retreat, which we can't always stay on retreat either, but you know, I can sure see that. I can sure see you know getting out of you know your daily routine where you would need that, especially a silent routine, uh, retreat. I don't know, stretch but, your mind. What if you could just be in flow all the time? <laughs> And it's yeah, also nice. Nice. it's also a question of the basis for action. We tend to create the self as a basis for our life. You know, it's like I need to do this in order that I take care of my health, in order that I if you mentioned something about well, if I didn't have a self, I'd just become homeless and fall apart. Mm-hmm. How do you know? And there are other bases for action. The wise intentions are letting go, loving kindness and compassion. You would, of course, take care of yourself if you were liberated because you would only be acting from the three wise intentions, which include compassion and love. You would never let yourself fall into a state like that. But you wouldn't be acting on the basis of of my wants. So this is a very radical notion. Even though it's simple, Mm -hmm. if we take it all the way, it's very, very radical. That's why this is a transformation. It's a different way... Our mind is organized around the self. That's how we grow up. That's how we're socialized. It's organized around me operating in the world. What practice does, what this practice does, if you take it all the way, is that your mind becomes organized around awareness. It's no longer organized around a self. It still functions, but it has a different basis, like changing the mathematical basis. (laughs) Yeah. Michael. Can you expand on that? That's, uh, I don't know, that our, our lives become oriented around awareness? That's one way to say it. it, it um, Ajahn, Chris may say it differently. I think Ajahn Sumedho uses this phrase, intuitive awareness. Mm-hmm. So it's a sense of being aware and also almost intuitively knowing what's needful in any given moment. So it's not so much thinking about, I need to do this, or they need to do that, but just having a sense of, in a way, embodying right action and right speech, just knowing what, what's needful in this moment. It, it's really, I mean, it's, it's really the 
development of wisdom. And understanding that the freedom is in the seeing itself. The, the mind, as soon as it sees something, it lets go. It's doing an action of continual letting go. And that is what sustains it until the body falls apart. But yeah, there's no need for that that self-construction. Too much effort. <laughs> Burdensome. Yeah. I was just going to share a, a way that I sort of get a little baby grasp on it, because like trying to see what's not there is sort of a hard and paradoxical thing, but I think it is, and we probably all have had the experience of seeing um, self under construction, and mm-hmm. so this idea of like selfing, like there's like, you know, like as a concrete example for me, if I get angry about something during the day, I can actually... And just if you're sort of maintaining a certain continuity of mindfulness, you can see how you don't want to let go of the anger because if you're feeling so amped up now physically, it would feel silly to like evaporate it the very next instance. Like it kind of catches you out, and so to maintain kind of a false sense of consistency, like to be a consistent person of like, mm-hmm. I am an angry person now. And to consistently be angry, like, I'm so excited now, it would be so silly to drop it a moment later. So I've got to hold on to it and that. And you can sort of watch that going on. It's like, wow, that's a whole lot of, um, you know, a whole lot of sort of effort and and work to maintain basically a false sense of consistency, a consistent identity. And so I think maybe that's, I don't know, for me, I find that as a way to get hold of, like, watching the, watching the thing under construction and just sort of like, well, and it's just, and how relentlessly exhausting it is. Like it's, it's, it's just like relentlessly exhausting to always be trying to prop up this front in a sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that helps, but that's a, that's sort of like the mm-hmm. other way around of it, maybe. That's a great um, example. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks. Have we found you way off your schedule already? No. The schedule is only a construct. (laughs) The seeing and the learning is the reality. We're flowing. We're flowing, exactly. So you guys want to look at the the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta? (laughs) Wow, that's it. It's right. It's a nice long one. Um, okay, so uh, I guess I'll start. Yeah, we're going to start. (laughs) Okay. Um, Great. So this is said to be the first discourse spoken by the Buddha after after his awakening. And I just, I'm going to give a little bit of the uh, context and set up the situation and then Chris is going to cover the main teaching that he gives in this sutta. So let's uh, let's start with the reading, like we do. Would anybody like to read the? Um, how about the first two paragraphs? Yeah, Margaret. I've heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying at the Varanasi at Varanasi in the game re- refuge at Isipatana. There he addressed the group of five monks. There are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth. Which two? That which is devoted to sensual pleasure with reference to the sensual objects. 
base, vulgar, common, ignoble, unprofitable, and that which is devoted to self-affliction, pain, ignoble, unprofitable. Avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata, producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. Okay. There's a lot in there. <laughs> There's a lot of key words in there. If you haven't read many suttas, this may sound like a foreign language, but these words are repeated in various ways in other suttas, so this is a chance to start getting familiar with them. Um, I'll just briefly say that the group of five monks that's just sort of thrown in there, that's a particular group that is understood to be the five, when the Buddha was practicing ascetic practices um, before his awakening. He got in with these five other monks, so there were six of them practicing together. Um, This was after he did, he left the palace, he practiced the jhanas and these sort of high blissful concentration states, realized this is an awakening. So he went out in the forest and did these really radical ascetic practices. It's said that he starved himself and got down to eating one grain of rice per day and was really skinny and nearly dead from, you know, torturing his body with the idea that you could drive away the, se- the sensual desires by crushing the body, basically. And he was practicing with these five guys. And then eventually he realized, this isn't it either. <laughs> this is not working. And so he took a meal, and they all said, oh, forget it, he's fallen away, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, that gave him the strength, this is the myth, that gave him the strength to then become awakened. And he realized that um, neither of those paths of sense pleasures is the next paragraph, but sense pleasures or self-mortification were the path to awakening. Um, and so when he became awakened, he thought about who he could go teach. And at first he thought of his two jhana teachers, actually, um, who had taught him the base of nothingness and the base of neither perception nor non-perception, which are very high, rarefied states of mind. And he found out that both of those teachers were dead, and he couldn't teach them anymore. This is an interesting part of the teachings, right? Is that He finally gets awakened, he realizes, okay, these teachers were pretty close, they had really high attainments, but they're dead. <laughs> you know, they got to wait till then. Who knows? Hopefully, they were reborn and met him at some point. Um, and so then he thinks, well, all right, who could I go teach? And he realizes, oh, maybe those five guys that I was practicing with before. So he goes and talks with them. Um, and we'll see at the end the result of that. So then um, the next paragraph is, is uses this is the first use of the word middle way. The middle way realized by the Tathagata. We use this phrase all the time. It's a common colloquial word. It just means not going to either extreme. Let's try to find the middle way here instead of this or that, right? But um, this is, the Buddha said it right away. And, And what he meant was between the path that lies between just fulfilling our sense needs, which is kind of what the self is trained to do. You know, it's just like, how can I get what's pleasant and not get what's unpleasant and just live my life and, you know, so forth. He says that doesn't really work. Common, base, vulgar, ignoble, unprofitable. It's not going to lead you there. So then he, but then he realized that the self-affliction, we don't do as much of that in our culture, um, but we do it mentally, right? We, uh, 
we have self-denigration, self-judgment, putting ourselves down. And he says that's not it either, painful, ignoble, unprofitable. So then he finds the middle way. So um, then the middle way, as said in the next paragraph, is the Eightfold Path. Yeah? So, and then he backs up from there, and he starts, um, you know, I think we'll skip over reading the Eightfold Path. We know those steps. And so I'll turn it over to Chris for the uh, teaching on the Four Noble Truths. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So one of the things uh, interesting is that before he talked about the Four Noble Truths, he presented the path. So I think that's very interesting. So would someone like to start reading from uh, the fourth paragraph, read the Four Noble Truths? So it starts at, now this monks. Someone read those four paragraphs. Yes, thank you. Now this monks is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the beloved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. Continue? Yes, please. Yes. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the origination of stress. The craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now, here, and now, there, i.e., craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non becoming. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of stress. The remainder list, fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment. Release and letting go of that very quickly. And then the last, on the top of the, the page fourth there. Truth. The fourth truth. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. Precisely this noble, painful path. Right view, right result, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Thank you. So th- this formulation of the Four Noble Truths is sometimes the, um, the Buddha is likened to a physician who the first truth he's diagnosing the problem or the sickness you know that that there is stress and these are the forms that it takes in one's life and by the way this particular um, translation by Tan Jeff he uses the word stress for in place for the Pali term dukkha you know some people use uh, unsatisfactoriness, some people use suffering, there's many different translations. Uh, I like the word stress, and it's one we can relate to. We might feel like, well, I'm not really suffering now, but if I asked if you had had some stress during the day, you're like, yeah, yeah, there's, <laughs> now there's some moments of stress during the day. But the Buddha here is pointing out these, the, the, big, the biggies, you know, birth, sickness, old age, death, being with the unloved, Losing the loved. But then he says, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So what is, what's that? Anyone have a sense of what the five aggregates is all about? Yes? Well, basically, yeah, there's, there's form, there's uh, senses, there's uh, consciousness. I know I'm not going through all five of them, but yeah. essentially... The essence of the body, how it's 
how it's built to perform in this world and how we can go down those paths to all the shiny, delightful objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it's actually the mind and the body. And the five aggregates is the way of the Buddha deconstructed the self. So if we would look at what we normally think of as ourself, we could break it down into form having to do with physical form, the body and forms we perceive, feeling, you know, that we talked about, uh, I think, last time, the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, pleasant nor unpleasant, perceptions, you know, that faculty we have that allows us to recognize you know, things that we experience, naming things. Mental formations, which is all the stuff our mind does, all the ways it constructs reality for us in various places, and also volitional formations, the idea of we intentions that we have, decisions we make, actions we take, and then consciousness. In this sense, it's consciousness that has connected with some sense experience. So... We have a sensory experience with, you know, we, we see something with our eye, which, which causes eye consciousness to arise, and then there's this contact. So this was the way the Buddha, you know, that we were talking earlier about the self. He deconstructed the self into these five aggregates. He said, clinging to it is stressful. In, in a way, he said, in short, to sum it all up, all the suffering in our life is because of clinging to the five aggregates, to our sense of self. So that leads into the next one, the cause of stress. So the first one's the problem, the second one is what's causing the problem. So it says the cause of the problem is craving. Craving that makes for further becoming. Anyone have a sense of what that's talking about? Craving that makes for further becoming. Just creating that whole thing all over again. You crave something, you chase after it, you get it, uh, you become distressed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, just, it's it's like saying, to me, it's like saying samsara. Mm-hmm. That it, that's just constantly going on until you can step out of it and right. see what's happening. Yeah, so samsara is a, a good summation because it's that cycle of birth and death. So becoming, which causes birth, which then leads to the whole cycle of suffering, death. And if we don't get off that, we just go round and round, which is, you know, the long version is dependent origination. So this is sort of the short version. So that's the problem. And then the next one, the third noble truth, is that there is a, there's a cessation of suffering or stress. There's a way to the end of it, which is the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. And he, in the second noble truth, he further defines craving as the craving for sense pleasure craving for being or becoming, or the craving for not being or becoming. So that craving for sense pleasure, I think we can relate to you know, wanting some pleasant, ex- sensual experience. 
the craving for becoming is that wanting to be, wanting to be something, or creating, as Michael said, selfing, creating the self. But then there's that craving for non-being, non-becoming, which is related to that uh, wrong path of uh, the annihilation, trying to do away with the self, trying to destroy the self. Well, if, if the self is ca- causing suffering, then I'll try to destroy it. And that is also a cause of suffering. But in the third noble truth, it says the way out is actually to drop the craving. And he uses many synonyms here for it. You know, so fading, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, letting go. You know, take your pick which one works for you as far as abandoning is another one, abandoning that craving. So in the medical format, is that the prognosis? That's the prognosis. He's basically saying there's a cure, and this is what the cure is. And then the last one, the fourth noble truth, is the, the prescription, if you will. This is what you have to do to affect the cure. Practice the Eightfold Path. I think, you know, it's very interesting what Kim was saying earlier about the Eightfold Path. We, we tend to think of the path as something that's, because it's called a path, we think it's something that's going somewhere. That when we get to the end of it, we'll be somewhere. But in a way, path and fruition are the same thing, which... We'll, we'll get to later in the next section. So, would someone like to read the next four paragraphs, which are rather long? Um, this starts with Vision or Rose. They're, all four of them start with Vision or Rose. It's actually five paragraphs, two are run together. Anyone <clears throat> up for this? Michael. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of stress. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This noble truth of stress is to be comprehended. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This noble truth of stress has been comprehended. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the origination of stress. This noble truth of the origination of stress is to be abandoned. This noble truth of the origination of stress has been abandoned. I'll just follow the ellipses there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the cessation of stress. This noble truth of the cessation of stress is to be directly experienced. This noble truth of the cessation of stress has been directly experienced. Vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. 
this noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress is to be developed. This noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress has been developed. Thank you. So, as, as you read through this, did you, what did you notice about it? Anything in particular sort of jump out at you about this section of the sutta? It's repetitive, yes. There's a formula going on here. Um, repetitive, and yet there's, at the end of each repetition, there's a different mm-hmm. term that's used, right? So the first noble truth is to be comprehended. And so it, it's actually going in three stages. You know, first is the stage where one sees the noble truth. It's, it's sort of like, you kind of get it on an intellectual level. Then the next one is realizing the task that needs to be done, how to practice with it. So the task in the first one is to comprehend the, the noble truth of suffering. And then the realization, when one has completed the task, is it's been comprehended. So this is a pointer about how to, how to actually use the Four Noble Truths in practice. So the next one, the term here is abandoned. So with regard to craving, to realize that the origination of stress, which is craving, is to, is to be abandoned. And then to practice with it to the point where one feels that at least maybe only temporarily it's been abandoned, but you get a sense of what it would be like to abandon craving. And then the third noble truth, cessation of stress, is to be directly experienced. And again, to practice with it until one has directly experienced cessation. So what, what, would, what is cessation about here? If, if suffering of stress and the underlying craving that is causing it has ceased, has stopped. What is that? Nibbana. That's Nibbana. That's the definition of Nibbana, right? <laughs> Just that. Mm-hmm. Just that. Also <laughs> called unbinding. In unbinding, yes. There are many different terms for Nibbana. And then, then lastly, the Eightfold Path is to be developed. And when one fulfills the Eightfold Path as fully developed it, and that actually leads to that cessation of stress. So is that third term in each sequence, is that like Kim was referring to at the beginning, looking back from the end, and is that the looking back from the end part Uh, of understanding, to to have that, you know, has been comprehended, has been developed? Well, I think, you know, we're fortunate that the Buddha went there first, so he figured this out for himself. He didn't have someone else, um, although there's a later sutta that we'll, we may read and touch on where he realizes that he wasn't the first one to figure this out. But he didn't have someone else telling him you know, how to approach this, but he told us. So we don't have to figure out for ourselves, oh, I have to comprehend suffering. 
but we can practice with it to the point where we do comprehend it. We can practice with the craving underlying suffering to the point where we can abandon it. We can practice with, you know, the noble eightfold, yeah, noble eightfold path to the point where we realize cessation. But yes, the looking back part is, and that's an important part of the practice, is where one realizes that what needs to be done has been done. That sort of, it intrigues me a little bit, because you would, I mean, I naively would think that, like, um, say, the noble truth of the cessation of stress has been directly experienced. Well, or I would think that just experiencing it mm-hmm. is enough, like mm-hmm. you're done, and this is kind of saying, like, no, it's not enough. Like, there's a step after mm-hmm. that, which is mm-hmm. to somehow, I'm not exactly sure, like, conceptually know it has happened after... You know, I don't. It's interesting yeah. that there's this extra thing beyond what would seem like achieving it. But, um. Right. Well, in 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 fact, there is um, there's you know what's what's considered liberation, and then the knowledge of liberation mm-hmm. that when one has fully, you know, you can experience cessation from time to time in your practice or even outside your practice. You might just suddenly realize, you know, all that stuff has stopped, all that craving has stopped for a little while, but it comes back, right? It it restarts. So then one knows, well, I'm not done. Even though I had this moment of nirvana, I'm still not done, that there's more to do, there's more of the path to cultivate. Um, But there is a point, apparently, where one looks inward and goes, I'm done. You know, the, mm. the taint, as they say, the taints or the defilements have been destroyed. They're no longer there. They're, they will not arise again. So apparently, you know, that happens for people who are <laughs> completely enlightened. Um, just one more thing I want to say about this. This type of construction where there's these three statements, or four statements, the Four Noble Truths, and then there's permutations, these three permutations of them. In, uh, you know, that period of time, in the Buddhist time, that kind of construction was called a wheel. And that's why this is called setting of the wheel of the Dhamma in motion, because he constructed this wheel that we can work with, and it set the Dhamma in motion at that point. Next, on to you. Okay. Um, so we're going to look now at the f- kind of what happens after that. You know, he has this grand understanding. And I think we won't read the entire rest of the sutta, but um, the first thing he says after that is he just has a little um, check for us where he says, as long as uh, my three-round, twelve permutation, that's what Chris was just describing. So... Um, three different things about each of four truths makes twelve permutations. Um, As long as that was not pure, I did not claim to have directly awakened to the rightly self-awakening, unexcelled in the cosmos, etc., the right self-awakening. And then he says, but as soon as I did know that it was truly pure, then I did um, declare it. So that's just a little, this is 
something that's repeated in other suttas, there are little hints given that it's possible to believe that you're awakened when you're not, actually. Um, It's a challenging enough thing to be sure about that people sometimes think that they're completely done and they aren't. And so um, that's my interpretation of why he has this little thing in there, is that it's just a reminder to be really, really clear that you've really looked carefully and you don't have any more clinging before you claim to have awakened. And then um, maybe we'll just read this last line. Um, Would someone read the very last sentence of that paragraph I was just talking about? So it says, knowledge and vision arose in me unprovoked. Would someone read that sentence? Knowledge and vision arose in me. Unprovoked is my release. This is the last birth. There is now no further becoming. Okay, so this is a um, declaration of complete awakening. And this is uh, not exactly the most common pattern. There's another one that people, that people who were awakened after the Buddha tend to say. But there's usually some kind of declaration. And that goes also with your point, Michael, is that there has to be some recognition or understanding of what has happened. And the usual thing is that people who awoke after the Buddha go to the Buddha and they declare arahantship. They declare, this is my, and this is a common way of saying it, this is the last birth, there is now no further becoming. So I'm not going to take rebirth. I've been completely awakened. My mind and body will completely cease at the end instead of taking another birth. Yeah, Heidi. What, what does unprovoked is my release? It's an interesting word. This doesn't, I don't know that this appears um, in a declaration of awakening otherwise, but my understanding of it is that um, this is related to a quality in the mind that's also described in the Vasudhimaga as, um, or sorry, in the Abhidhamma as um, unprovoked. Was it? It's like unprompted. That's the word. So unprompted. So this is something that happened on its own. I didn't do it, basically. It wasn't brought about by anybody. I was not given freedom from a god, for example. So this is a sort of a religious statement. You know, I wasn't given it, I wasn't granted it, and I didn't achieve it on my own either. It is something, it was a natural result that came about. This is another quality of the path and the practice related to our earlier discussion about uh, not-self. If there's, you know, there's no one doing it. (laughs) It's like a tree growing, and then it flowers, and then it fruits. And that's just the process that happens. Uh, If we don't get in the way of that, it will happen. And so this is an understanding that this that he went through a completely natural process. Would you agree with that, Chris? Is that, yeah. Right. Yeah. I th- I think it's you know a lot of times if you hear or read about the experience of awakening, um, it's often described as a discontinuous experience that it it's not based on what came before. So it's, it's sort of like that idea of the tree growing. With the Eightfold Path, practicing it, we're cultivating, um, sort of cultivating a garden, but we're not making, we don't make the plants grow, they grow on their own. So we're we're creating the conditions for something to arise, which is actually not conditioned. This is very, that's what the unprovoked sort of, to me, has this sense of unconditioned. There's no 
nothing underlying that I did that I can point to and say, this caused that, mm-hmm. which is usually the way most things arise. This causes that, or this mm-hmm. arose with that. Um, so, to me, it has that sense of this kind of, we do all this stuff, and then something happens, but we didn't make it happen. Mm-hmm. Or someone else outside of us didn't make it happen. So it's an unmediated experience. Yeah. And that's emphasized more in some other forms of Buddhism, isn't it? I mean, like, I read all this stuff from Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism about, you know, you're already awakened, you don't have to do any particular thing, you just have to realize it. And, and, uh, and that's not and, what and this says, though. Theravada Buddhism has a path. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> For sure. Right. That's what we're learning I mean, about in the sutta. In other forms of Buddhism, that just that it's something that can strike you at any moment. It seems like there are a lot of references to that that I don't see in Theravada. No, well, that's I, a I Zen think idea. Still a path. Yeah. But you do. Have, but what they're saying is every every being is has this innate goodness or this innate freedom that can be realized. But it can be realized. It's not really. It's kind of front and back of the hand, right? If you're talking about something unconditioned, is it that it's always there and there's clouds in front of it? Even the Tibetan tradition will acknowledge, or even the Zen tradition, which is about sudden awakening, acknowledges that the clouds aren't going to just spontaneously clear. You've got to do something. (laughs) There's no path that doesn't have any effort somehow. It's just whether or not you see it as revealing something that was already there or developing something. Um, developing the ability to see it, for example, we're getting into, and there may eventually, there may actually be different results of the different paths. I don't claim that they all go to the same place. So that's that becomes a, a <laughs> philosophical question. Well, to Chris's point, it's like we're gardeners, but all we do is set up the conditions. Yeah, that's right. And plant the seed, and then the seed does its own thing. Yeah. Listening to Alan Watts, it's, it, to me, Zen is a little different. It's like if you sit in your backyard long enough, the weeds will grow. You know, it's to me, that's a difference in Zen. And, and we're talking about actually doing something, mm-hmm. you know, preparing the ground or, or whatever. Yeah, and you might have to do some weeding, too. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To make sure those the plants that are the good ones are, are able yeah. to grow. Yeah, there's different views of this. I think I want to just make one more point. I don't want to go through all the heavens. Um, <laughs> this is the part where you know it echoes up through the heavens. This was a big event, actually. The Buddha's awakening, I mean, the reason we're sitting in this room is an echo of something that happened under that tree long ago. If that didn't happen, this wouldn't be happening, right? It's a very distant cause for this. Um, so that was a powerful event. I just want to talk briefly about Kundanya. Anya Kondanya. Um, Kondanya, who knows? So he was one of the group of five. He was one of the people listening to this um, who had been one of these ascetics. And it says a little bit higher up than the end, it says, There arose to venerable Kondanya the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. So this is also a declaration, one that's made in many other suttas by people who have uh, seen something. And 
Um, we won't have time to go through this whole thing, but essentially this tradition understands that there are different stages of awakening, and the mind will um, release certain particular fetters that bind it at different times. And the first major cessation is getting rid of three out of, out of ten fetters, and that often leads to this declaration, a, a complete understanding of a Nietzsche. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. So this person has a glimpse of complete cessation, and then, as Chris says, the suffering comes back, but it forever changes the understanding. To know for sure that suffering can cease, you have complete faith in the Dharma and also in the Buddha um, and also in the Sangha, but we haven't gotten to that yet. But, uh, you know, if you had a moment when you saw for sure that all suffering can end, even if it came back at the next moment, you would know. You would know, and nobody could take that away. And so this is called stream entry. It's the stream entry. It's the first understanding, sometimes called the Dhamma I, also. But he's not done. Um, there's a later sutta. The second sutta, no, the third the second sutta that the Buddha gave, the second discourse, which was the discourse on not-self, Kondanya becomes fully awakened. So yeah, he does get there. <laughs> but what's significant about this, and this is really my last point about this, um, the very last line. So you really know, you really know, and that is how he acquired, he acquired this name. You know, why is that in there? Does anyone have an idea what, what the significance of Kondanya glimpsing cessation is? This is a good point. So having heard these teachings, it would be possible to awaken from these. Mm-hmm. So it's that's one implication. Another um, point is that uh, this is the creation of the Sangha. So the Sangha of awakened people is people who understand the Buddha's teachings. We tend to use Sangha very casually. It's just like anybody who's practicing, like a group like this or ISC Sangha, etc., which is fine. It's just different meanings of the same word. But um, the noble Sangha is those who have had a taste of awakening, stream entry or higher. And there wasn't a Sangha when there was only a Buddha. Uh, and that this is the moment when it was born. There was a second person who was um, irrevocably on the path to awakening. It said that stream entry is the moment where, since you know for sure, awakening will be, is inevitable. You have to flow to the ocean at that point. Um, so this sort of moves me because it was, his, it was the transmission. He successfully transmitted it to the, the... One person got the first stage of awakening. So even the Buddha wasn't a perfect teacher from day one. He didn't just go out and you know everybody heard him and immediately became enlightened. Um, so he's learning. The other four guys were not. The other four guys didn't get it, um, but they got it the second time. So anyway, so that's this is a... Amazingly packed sutta. I'm delighted we got to go through it. It has a lot in it. It has insight. It has nibbana. It has the path. So we've really covered everything. But um, we'll go on. Yes, Chris. Okay. So let's let's We're go good. on to um, the five more path. minutes is good. The path on uh, which is SN 1.1, crossing over the flood. It's on the third page. Yes. So 
since we are running low on time, um, I'll, I'll dispense with the first part. I'll just, you know, I assume you've read it. But this is one of those suttas, there's a number of them, where a, a deva comes and asks the Buddha a question. And they often come in the middle of the night, as it describes here. And the, and the deva says, tell me, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood. And he says, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So what is, it, what is this referring to as far as flood? Does anyone know what the flood is about here? Samsara? I'm looking at Kathleen. Yeah, the, <laughs> I know the you flood know. is kind of like the, all the obstacles to... I mean, it, it's... I'll give you a hint. It's normal life. There's four of them. Oh, oh, oh gosh. The four floods. Yeah. So there's four floods that this refers to. The flood of um, sensuality, the flood of becoming, the flood of views, and the flood of ignorance. And these are the things that tend to keep us bound in suffering. And one of the metaphors for enlightenment is crossing over the floods. And the Buddha says this rather cryptic, paradoxical thing. He crossed over without pushing forward and without staying in place. So I, I look at this, it's almost like a Theravadan koan. It's one of things, huh? Yeah. What? And it really is, it, it's one of those things that can make your mind stop and almost shift to a different level. So then he goes on and says, But how, dear sir, did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? When I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So what he's really describing here is what we referred to earlier as the middle way. Staying in place is, is just staying sunk in the floods, which is sort of like the path of the hedonistic life, you know, trying to appease all your pleasures as a way of trying to end suffering. The pushing forward is the other one of like trying to push against the floods, which is the you know the path of uh, annihilationism, trying to do away with it in some way. And he re- he had realized that neither of those worked, so he declares this middle way, which is neither of those. But he doesn't really describe here what that is. He just refers to it, or it's inferred that there's another way. But the deva, I guess, was close enough to <laughs> realization that he understood it. He said, At long last I see a Brahmin totally unbound, who, without pushing forward, without staying in place, has crossed over the entanglements of the world. So here's that word, unbound. So it, it's another synonym for being enlightened, to be unbound. And then it closes, that is what the Devata said, the teacher approved. Realizing that the teacher has approved of me, she bowed down to him, circumambulated him, keeping him to the right, and then vanished right there. 
So, you know, this is one of those... This is, are so sweet. This is one of those uh, suttas that really, I think, it, it just bears contemplating. Just to read it and kind of let it roll around your mind. What is this really referring to? What is he talking about here? Of course, with the background of, you know, having already looked at the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, we start to have a clue what he's talking about here. You know, the way to cross the flood. Anything else you want to add about this particular sutta? No. In the, in the commentary, one. it said this was about light effort. Or, well... Yeah, this is about about wise effort. Yes. Walking, how to walk the path skillfully. There's so. probably several different ways it could be interpreted. Sure. All right, I think we should move on since time is okay, going so, short. Okay, um, so I was going to talk about this last one, about the ancient path, but I think maybe what I'll do is um, first ask if there are any nagging questions um, since we are drawing to the end of this three-session series. It said that Nibbana and Nirvana are interchangeable. Yeah, they're just, one is the Pali word, Nibbana is in Pali, and Nirvana is Sanskrit. I always thought of Nirvana, Nirvana as a singular, but in some, one of the things you passed out, it said Nibbanas, multiple, multiple plural. It was, which which is that? that <laughs> I think it was the last question. It could have been a typo, I don't know. So I just wondering, how can we have multiple no, there's only one Nibbana, <laughs> for sure. It does say that um, rightly self-awakened ones of former times. There is a reference to other Buddhas in the last, um, in the last sutta. Mm-hmm. But if it if it did say Nibbanas, that's definitely a typo. Okay. Yeah. My nagging question was: I think what you were going to address about the never seen before versus something entirely new—that was confusing to me. That he said, you mean in the declaration? The, the path, oh. um, that he saw the ancient city and then rebuild the city. And I, I guess I know that Buddhism, Buddha was a Hindu, and his um, previous teachers were Hindus. So I, I couldn't understand reading this thing about the ancient path what that meant. Just it's kind of another con. Oh, it's like, yeah. You know what it, it's an allegory. Okay. So it has each thing stands for something. Um and, you know, uh basically the path, so it says in the next paragraph that the path he discovers is the eightfold path. But basically the king and the queen are are us. <laughs> the king or the queen. So the Buddha is the person who traveled um, along, and he's this man who finds an ancient path. The um, the significance of that is that he didn't create the path. He found it. It's already there. So the Dharma is built into the universe. You know, this is a, maybe related to unprovoked, um, in that it's something that's already, uh, yeah, built into the structure of the universe. In a sense, he he discovered it, and then so he followed it, and then he finds a an ancient city, etc., which is um, 
you know, the free life, the free and uh, open life of uh, being liberated, essentially. And then he comes back and he says, let's rebuild that. And, you know, and the person who's going to rebuild that, who's going to create that, is, is us. <laughs> We're the students. And so it's kind of nice that we get to be the kings. <laughs> so he's saying that the path is like a, a law of, of nature, of mm-hmm. physics, that, which I often find really helpless as I'm a very non-devotional, non-religious person. To just, It's so much about that this is the way to be happy. And this is like the Chris's cultivation image. You know, there's yes. things that we can do to make the plants grow, but they or grow on their own. You know, or we cannot, and then they won't. <laughs> That's a few weeds in the heart. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's an it's a interesting uh, thing to contemplate. And it's, you know, it wasn't created by God. It wasn't given by somebody else. It's there to be found. I think it, it also has a bit of the resonance that there were prior Buddhas and that other Buddhas had walked this path, and so it was an ancient path in that regard, too, that he yeah. found a path that others had walked before him. So he wasn't declaring, you know, I've created this, or I, you know, it's something new that I, I made, but it's, it, it's been there all along. Others have walked it before me, as you're saying, it's sort of built into the universe. But um, something that really struck me in the sutta was about uh, consciousness, because I know that's you know one of the sort of standard dependent origination links. And in a part of the sutta that's uh, that's not in the excerpt here, it's kind of going through those links. Except um, instead of it being a linear chain like I've usually seen it presented, when it gets to consciousness, consciousness and name and form mutually create each other. It talks about how if name and form disappears, consciousness disappears, and vice versa. So there's like a little loop in there that I've never seen. And then that sort of combined with this path that leads to uh, direct knowledge of the origination of consciousness and cessation of consciousness. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it's it sort of, I don't know, something really, yeah, I think it's easy, at least for me, to kind of think that consciousness is like the the thing that is aware, that's sort of like waiting there to be aware, it's kind of easy to try to turn it into a self, basically. Mm-hmm. And this is like pretty clear that uh, consciousness uh, just comes and goes and uh, leads to suffering. And and I also i am only vaguely aware of other strains of Buddhism, Mahayana and Vajrayana, but I get this sort of vague sense that at least in some Mahayana circles, consciousness gets held up as sort of this like, universal field or something that does that is permanent and that and we have this is pretty clear that like nope there's no universal field there's nothing that's permanent um and consciousness um is always imprinted with an object there is no consciousness without an object yeah and so that was um that's I, I actually something about this struck me as really bold basically mm. um like like very bold actually there's um, there's another sutta in the majjhima nikaya where a monk comes to the buddha and says Consciousness is that which lives into the next life. You know, there's a consciousness that's going to go on. And he says, this is what I believe. And the Buddha just takes him apart. <laughs> you know, it's like, he says, misguided man, when have you ever known me to teach the Dharma like that? And then he gives this long explanation of dependent origination. Uh, it's a great sutta. You should have a look at it. But um, this is, you brought up so many 
interesting points. It's very hard to <laughs> bring them all. Um, but the part about the um, the two conditioning each other, I, I will pick that up because um, that was what I was referencing at the beginning when I said the Buddha got to a point where he could only see a certain amount of this chain. If you look, if the uh, this is earlier in the sutta, and then he he finds this path and he follows it completely, and he finds that consciousness does actually cease, and then it goes on direct knowledge of fabrications, and those two cease. So he he could only get to those two conditioning each other at some point, and then when he had completed the path, when he to get to the completion of the path, he pushed all the way back, and and that was when he reached ignorance at the beginning of um, of the cycle of dependent origination, which we haven't talked about in this class. So it's interesting um, to see that that's actually that process I was describing, where the Buddha only got a certain way, and then he broke all the way through, and this section is the one where he gets all the way through and discovers that um, fabrications actually are the condition for consciousness, and ignorance is the condition for fabrications, instead of seeing that mutual conditioning. Um, but that's a pretty fine detail that you have to <laughs> read fairly carefully. Um, but you're right about the consciousness. Let me just say one more thing about consciousness, which is that actually the uh, there are disagreements in different, oh, disagreements, but different interpretations in different strands of Buddhism about consciousness and its relation to Nibbana and, and to uh, this experience of emptiness that is said to be freedom. So one school, um, which is actually, even within Theravada Buddhism, you'll find both of these, so I'm not, I don't even have to go outside of the schools. One school says that um, Nibbana is a purified consciousness that is, uh, com- that is you know, not self at all. It's completely empty of self, but it's a purified consciousness that has no greed, hatred, or delusion in it, and it's just this incredibly pure awareness Another school says that Nibbana is the cessation of all five aggregates, so it's a state without consciousness. So it's not exactly an experience, and you don't like have a memory of it like the experience of your dinner this evening. And each school says that the other one has not gone far enough. <laughs> um, well, if you went a little farther, you'd see that what we say is actually freedom. So I think I don't want to comment on whether on what kind of consciousness. But for sure, the consciousness that's talked about in dependent origination, and, and all schools agree on this, is sense consciousness, like what Chris said. It's, it is consciousness that arises with a sensory experience, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. And then there's a question as to whether or not there's some other kind of consciousness or not. In in Pali, is there more than one word that's translated as consciousness? Oh, yes. Vinyana, mano, mana, that's mind. There's several of them, yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the ways that um, Nibbana is explained and this, this concept of unbinding is the idea of unestablished consciousness. This consciousness that's not established on an object, that just is. But, you know, when you read things like this sutta, it really sounds like, no, consciousness ceases. You know, the cessation of consciousness. And in some ways that makes sense because even if you have just a glimpse of nibbana, it's very hard to describe. It's almost like you weren't, even though, you experienced it after the fact. It's like, 
how do you describe it? You know, what, what is, you know, it's often referred to as ineffable. You know, how, how, how do you, there's no words. It's, it's like it doesn't relate to anything in our normal experience. Any more other burning questions? Well, needless to say, we've only touched the tip of the iceberg at the suttas, but we've had a pretty grand tour, and um, I hope this has kind of whet your appetite, if you will, and uh, you know, the idea, we do um, several sutta classes per year, three or four weeks long, or sessions long, sometimes they have gaps of more than a week, and uh, my sense is that... Uh, We'll, we'll have some more of these, usually then on more specific topics. You know, we've done various things over the last couple of years, and um, I don't know. I think Chris talked something about maybe wanting to do the Satipatthana Sutta. Yeah, I, I did it last year. I may, I may offer it again. If I do, it'll probably be fall sometime. Yeah. yeah. But stay tuned. How many suttas are there? Thousands. Thousands. Many thousands. Yeah. yeah. And are those all believed to have from the Buddha? Um, they're all, well, some of them are said by his disciples. Um, so there are some suttas that were said by Sariputta, by um, even nuns. But it, uh, the teachings mainly are said to have been what the Buddha said. They were remembered by Ananda, by his he didn't write anything down during his life, and we didn't have like little recording devices like this. But um, his attendant Ananda uh, was said to have a perfect memory, and he and after the Buddha died, he recited everything that he had heard, and then that started an oral tradition for a few centuries, and then they were written down at some point. But there was a, was there a language that he could have used? Yes, but we don't know what he spoke exactly. What language it was. It might have been similar to Pali. That's what was it, they were eventually written down in, but scholars do not exactly know what the Buddha spoke. Is there something unique about the oral tradition, if you just use that term and say, um, during the Buddhist time, there was an oral tradition, a way of preserving knowledge orally, yeah, people people memorize them. Yeah, when that's why you do four of this and two of this. Well, that helps. It helps, right? And that's also this repetitive style is said to come from that because then in your mind you can remember a chunk and then just change a word of it in the next chunk. Yeah. 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 It's very easy set up for memorization, clearly. And when you yeah. hear like monks doing chanting in Pali, it's very rhythmic too. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like singing that it's easier to learn it that way. Right, and they probably learned it that way. And there are other tricks, like you learn things more easily if you're walking, so this was probably related to, could have been related to walking back and forth. And using the beads. We don't have them so much in the Theravadan tradition. I guess those probably came later. They're not, uh, they're probably not this early. So it's pretty cool, and here we are. I mean, we might think, oh, wow, we're just studying something in a book, but I see it as continuing that same path. You know, how did these get passed along? People learned them from each other. They talked about them. They said, what does this really mean? How is this showing up in your practice? Mm -hmm. Um, 
We're, we're no different than those other people. Yeah. There were a lot of people besides Buddha who were, had separated themselves from their families and so forth and were studying and teaching, weren't there? Yeah, actually it was a pretty rich, diverse religious environment. Which supposedly is the environment that Jesus was working in. Is that right also? Yeah. Yeah, that, that I'm not were, surprised. That was one of the reasons that the Romans got so mad. Why'd you pick him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Better marketing. There are times though people are. Well, I know there are some suttas where people come in and, and say things that Buddha corrects. <laughs> But somehow that format of, of the kind of the rhetorical question where the answer is always yes or no, it's it's not our learning style so much now. So sometimes, like, his talk to Rahula, I, I got a little annoyed with, you know. Oh, with that questioning style? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it might be useful to think of that more like a guided meditation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. That's how I understand it. Mm. All right. Are the Donna baskets out here? They are. Uh, they are. Good. Let's, uh, how about Let's if we just close for some with a uh, dedication of merit? Always a good thing to do. <clears throat> just taking a moment to appreciate yourself for coming tonight and making the effort to practice and appreciating the others in the room here and the larger sangha any merit from our practice go to the benefit of all beings everywhere that all beings will be free from suffering not one left behind